James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We'll begin reading with verse 13. James, as you already know by now, is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Somewhere in the middle of the first century, along about year 50 to 53, he's writing to Christians in and around the area of Jerusalem and Judea. Judea is kind of like the state in which Jerusalem was located. They're in the middle of an economic crisis. It's regional, not global like ours, but the results for those who were in it were about the same. People lost their jobs. People who didn't lose their jobs wondered if they'd have a job next week. Some people were experiencing lower compensation than they did the year before. Some people were having to move from Jerusalem and Judea out uh, into areas where the crisis was not as severe. And James is concerned about his people. And so he's writing to them, explaining to them how Christian faith fleshes out during a time of crisis. It's extremely important for you and me, you know, how we show our Christian faith in a time of crisis more than any other time in our lives. The unchurched world watches as to how Christians respond to a crisis. And ladies and gentlemen, if they find us responding in exactly the same way the rest of the world does, then they're asking, why should I be a Christian? Why should I consider Jesus? Why should I consider Christianity? So the way you and I respond is especially important. We're dealing with the moral and spiritual aspects of the economic downturn. So don't expect um, a lot of financial advice in this series. I mean, here's about the extent of my financial advice. Buy low, sell high. That's all I have. James is concerned with the theological aspects of the crisis. How we allow God to work through us to deal with the crisis. And he's already told us several things. In chapter 1 he says, he says, expand your vision because if you do that you'll see that God does things in your crisis that he doesn't do at any other time. God does his greatest work in a time of chaos. It's been that way ever since the beginning. He also says in chapter 1 that it's a waste of time to assign blame, to try to find out who's to blame for the crisis that you and I experience. And then before he leaves chapter 1, he says, take the time, the opportunity that the crisis affords you to be a listener to God. Because God speaks in shouts when we are in a crisis. Chapter 2, he tells us what kind of faith will survive the crisis. In chapter 3, he tells us to live by God's wisdom, not man's wisdom, if you want to survive and thrive in the crisis. And then in the opening verses of chapter 4, he listed some human responses, common human responses to crises that usually make matters worse, not better. Now, beginning with verse 13, he deals with our plans. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, 
buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This has been quite a week, hasn't it? Tuesday, June 23rd, Ed McMahon passed away, 86 years old, Ed McMahon. I've told you before what a great fan my mother was of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. For her, it hasn't been the same since his retirement. She always loved to stay up and hear Johnny Carson's monologue, but prior to that monologue, those of you who are old enough to know, you remember that Ed McMahon, Johnny's sidekick, would open up the show with what two words? Here's Johnny. I love Ed McMahon. Had a great voice. He was not only the voice of the sidekick of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but he also was the voice of Star Search. We knew that Ed McMahon was going to die pretty well soon. We knew that he was. He'd been sick for some time. What we would have never imagined the day that The Tonight Show went off the air is that this multi-million dollar man who was responsible or at least partially responsible for the success of literally hundreds of stars. Even Britney Spears was discovered on Star Search. We would have never imagined the day he retired that he would be near bankruptcy when he died. What about that? You just, you just never know. June 23rd. June 25th. Farrah Fawcett died. Farrah Fawcett was one of those folks who was supposed to live forever because when she died, it makes me feel old. Farrah Fawcett, she was only on Charlie's Angels one season, but I would have sworn she was on there all five of them. She was a part of a poster. Do you remember the poster? It was a pinup poster. To this day, it was the best-selling pinup poster ever sold. I have that poster in my office beside, no, no, I don't, but I did. Well, not in my church office. I had it at my, at my house. Before I got married, I had Farrah Fawcett's pinup poster. I wish I still had it, not to look at it, but I think it'd be worth something today. I'd kind of like to sell it to somebody. Farrah Fawcett, she was age 62. It's hard for me to believe Farrah Fawcett was 62. I remember back in the 70s, she was married to the $6 million man. You remember that? Lee Majors. And I was heartbroken when they, when they divorced. That was back in early 1982. By the end of 1982, she was in a relationship with Ryan O'Neill. I never did like that. They lived together from 82 until 
just this past month. Within the past month, Ryan O'Neill finally decided he's going to propose to her, and he had proposed to her. Would you marry me? I'm told, although I haven't verified this with the family, that she answered with one part of a single word. Prenup. That's what I heard. I don't know. They were planning on getting married before she died. They never did. You never know. Later that afternoon, Michael Jackson. I was teaching a class at Bruton Parker College. And this class has 11 people. Among the people in the class are several African Americans. And when we took a break, they started text messaging. And somebody said, Michael Jackson is dead. We thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. I even made a comment about what his last words might have been. I, I, I shouldn't have. It was really irreverent for me to have done so. I figured his last words were, Billie Jean is not my girl. She's just a girl who thinks that I am the one. The kid is not my son. I, I figured that was his last words. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said it now, but there I go. I always keep getting in trouble. 50. Age 50. Dead. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about Michael Jackson. I liked him. I liked his moonwalk. I've been practicing the moonwalk for 20 years. Uh, and I'm still in the process of perfecting it. I was watching a video of him just this past week moonwalking. I find it amazing how he does that. And so I don't have them on today, but I have bought some new Florsham shoes. They're slick on the bottom. You can't do moonwalk with these shoes. They have rubber bottoms. They stick to the carpet. But Florsham shoes, you can do moonwalks with those. And one of these days, I'm going to preach a sermon in which I walk over to this side of the stage, and as I'm preaching, I moonwalk to this side. You'll know it because I'll have on some white gloves when I do it, maybe some shades. Michael Jackson. They said when he died, there was a doctor there who uh, is a specialist in internal medicine and cardiology. He had hired the cardiologist to go with him on a tour that he was planning that would start in, uh, in March of 2009, 2010. I don't know when it's going to start. Anyway, there's going to be like a, a six to eight month tour in which he travels to 50 different, he does 50 different concerts in Great Britain. It was scheduled for, to start later this year and go into next year. 50 concerts. I'm told that they were already sold out. Now, you'd have to verify that. I, I don't know. I told there was so, over a million tickets. The, the first eight, ladies and gentlemen, the first eight of those concerts would have netted Michael Jackson $82.6 million. The first eight. He was doing 50. He needed the money, I'm told. He was afraid he would give out. And so he hired a cardiologist to accompany him, but he'd been working out, trying to get ready for this concert.
Did you know that Michael Jackson owns the rights to the Beatles songs? Did you know that? You remember several years ago, um, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson recorded together a song called Say, Say, Say. I never did like it. It didn't sound southern rock enough for me, and so I never would listen to it, but they recorded this song together. When they were recording the song, Paul McCartney said to Michael Jackson, who already was in some financial uh, stress, he said, Michael, you know, I've started making money by buying other people's songs. I bought them, and therefore any uh, copyright royalties, I get them. You might consider doing that. He shouldn't have given Michael that advice because uh, not long after that, the Beatles library, the John Lennon, Paul McCartney library, came up for sale. And Michael Jackson had his attorney make a bid on it. There were several com competing, competing bids. Among them, Paul McCartney. He wanted them, but the price got out of his, what he wanted to pay, and he backed out. And when he backed out, Michael Jackson up the ante a little bit, and then Paul McCartney changed his mind, decided he wanted those songs, they're his after all, and so he got in touch with Yoko Ono, John Lennon's widow, and said, go in with me and let's purchase our songs back, and she wouldn't do it. And so he backed off, and Michael Jackson purchased the Beatles library. It angered Paul McCartney, and they wouldn't speak to each other until the day of Michael's death. They still didn't speak to each other, and Michael always regretted it. I read just this week where Michael Jackson put in his will that the Beatles library goes back to Paul McCartney upon his death. Isn't that strange? You never know. People make plans. Since 2004, Time Magazine each year has recognized 100 people that they consider to be the most influential people in the world. Can you imagine being a person, you get the Time Magazine, you don't know who's going to be on there yet, and you open it up and there's your picture in the top 100? That's what happened to Tim Russert last year. In May of 2008, he was recognized as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. I love Tim Russer. I like to watch recordings of Meet the Press. I couldn't watch it live because I was in church. We have several church members, I'm told, who watch it live. It, it kind of ticks me off that they do. <laughs> Tim Russer was one of the most Influential people, recognized by Time Magazine in May of 2008. And Tim Russert had plans. He planned to be a major player reporting on the 2008 presidential election until June the 13th of 2008. One month after being listed in the top 100 most influential people, Tim Russert was at work at the NBC studios in New York, in, in, uh, in Washington, where he was the editor and he collapsed of a massive heart attack, and he was gone. Age 58. That's too close. People make plans. You and I make plans. These verses in James chapter 4 are all about making plans. It's a good subject for today because we make plans. Some of you have lunch plans today. 
Some of you have plans for your family later today. Some of you heard that I'm not going to be preaching tonight, and so you decided to come to church tonight. Or maybe you heard I was preaching, not preaching, and you decided not to come to church. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. You make marriage plans, college plans, job plans, family plans, vacation plans, retirement plans. And if you read this passage, you almost are led to believe that James says it's a sin to make plans. But that's not what he's saying. People make plans. Paul made plans. Constantly in his letters, he was giving his travel plans. Jesus made plans. Along about Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And Jesus steadfastly set his face to go toward Jerusalem. Listen, Luke is not halfway over in chapter 9, and he's already, his mind is on Jerusalem. Jesus has plans. We make plans plans. James is not saying don't make plans, but what James is going to say is that there's a right way to make plans and a wrong way, and he shares with us both the right way and the wrong way, and in telling us the right and the wrong ways to make our plans, our life plans, he gives us three truths that I think we need to incorporate into our plans. Number one, when you are making your life plans, remember that the future is uncertain. Now, not everything about the future is uncertain. I believe from a Christian perspective, it is certain that at some point out there, Jesus is coming back, God will win, those who have a relationship will spend eternity with him. That, for me, is a certainty. But so much about the future is uncertain. I can tell you that... Uh, that tomorrow I plan to get up, make coffee, eat a bowl of oatmeal, read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the New York Times and check all my emails, take a shower and come to the church, go down to Savannah Court and do a little quote-unquote entertaining for the seniors down there. I can tell you that I plan to do that. But I can also tell you that, that more often than I'd like to admit, my plans have been laid bare by an unexpected urgency that pops up. And so life is uncertain. James says in verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city. We will spend a year there. We will buy and sell. We will make a profit. He says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. So much of your future and so much of my future is uncertain. It's not uncertain from God's vantage point, but it is very uncertain from our vantage point. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I do not know where we will be one year from today. Ed McMahon's future was uncertain. Farrah Fawcett's future was uncertain. Michael Jackson's future with all of his plans, was uncertain. Tim Russert's future was uncertain. Our future is uncertain. The second thing I think that James would tell us to incorporate into our plans is to remember not only that the future is uncertain, but life is short. 
Life is short. Verse 14, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Every time I read that verse, as I've told you before, I think about growing up. My mother would be cooking supper with, with uh, green beans or something boiling on the, on the stovetop. And I would walk in there and I, I was, for some reason unknown, fascinated by the, the vapor that would come up above the pot and it'd go about a foot and a half and then it would just go away. And then I read what James says. He says, he says you remember that, that, that steam that came up off your mother's green beans, Jimmy? Your life is like that. It's here for a moment and all of a sudden it's gone. David said in Psalm 35, 39, verse 5, he says, Lord, you have made my days the length or width of my hand. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Psalm 90, which opens up with that wonderful verse that says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations from everlasting to everlasting you are God. But then he turns around and contrasts the everlasting character of God with the limited nature of our own earthly existence. He says, he says we're like grass that grows up in the morning. Maybe it flowers, but the sun comes out and it wilts and it's gone by nightfall. That's the way your life is. Life is short. Amy Carmichael is an Irish missionary to India. She died in 1951, but she said this. She says, we will have eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. That's a great quote. You and I as a church, we'll have eternity to celebrate the victories of, of Centrifuge, the victories of Camp Skipstone, the victories of the mission trip to New York but we only have a few hours before sunset to win them. Life is short. Our work is urgent. And you and I must be about the task, stripping ourselves of the apathy that we clothe ourselves with too often. Life is short. This past week I had two funerals. I told you I'm on par to preach more funerals this year than at any time in my 26 years of preaching, of pastoring. Both of the people that we buried this week were in their 90s, lived long lives. But I'll never forget two graveside services over at Tyrone behind what used to be the church building on the left side of the street. The building, I think, is owned by the city of Tyrone now. There were two unmarked graves buried somewhere around a couple of weeks, three weeks apart of two twin boys. Life is short. It's short if you live a few hours or a few days, and it's short if you live 120 years. I heard within this past month that the oldest man alive, so far as we know, died this past month leaving the next oldest man to be the oldest man. I think he's somewhere around 110, 5 or 10, somewhere like that. But when you look at the scope of eternity, and you contrast eternity with even the longest life that you and I know of today, let's say if it is 120 years, 
120 years in contrast to eternity is just like that. Life is short, and therefore we need to make the most of the short time that you and I have here to put, we talk about carbon footprint these days in, in our modern culture, we need to make a footprint for God in our world. So James says the future is uncertain. James says that life is short. And then finally he says this. He says, therefore, make plans that include God front and center. He says in verse 15, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And let me just stop here just for a moment. I almost wish James hadn't put this in there. Because we read that and we think, oh, well, let's see, in my prayer I need to add this little addendum here. I don't really know what it means and it doesn't mean that much to me, but let me just put in there, Lord, if it's your will. But James wasn't talking about a, a, a little verbal addendum to our prayers. He's talking about a lifestyle that incorporates God in every thing we do. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall, do, we shall live and do this or do that. But now you, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What's he talking about? What kind of boasting? Any boasting of any plans that we make that do not include God front and center in the plans. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ front and center in your life plans? Having him front and center is the only way to have a truly fulfilling and thriving life from the perspective of our God. And people who think that they can live without Christ front and center, people who think that they're, they're getting by just fine, that they don't need Jesus, there will come a day for them, I hope it won't be too late, when they will realize That a life absent of the Lord Jesus Christ front and center is a travesty and a tragedy. You see, God has a bigger plan than you and I envision. For every single person who's in here, God has a bigger plan than we envision for ourselves. You probably have never heard the name Juliette Bro, B-R-A-U-L-T. It's French. She lived in France during the... 1940s, actually she lived in the lovely province of Normandy. She was excited. She planned to marry her fiancé. His name was Georges. They were to be married on June the 6th, 1944. They scheduled the church. They'd already booked the minister. Juliet managed to buy a beautiful wedding dress. They'd chosen the best man, maid of honor, drew up a guest list, already made plans for the honeymoon. They'd even purchased a little house that would be their first home. They left nothing to chance, Juliet and Georges. What they didn't know was that while they were making their own down-to-earth plans, there were some people making other plans. President Roosevelt, General George Marshall, 
Prime Minister Winston Churchill and General Ike Eisenhower were meeting in a room and they were making plans. They were making plans for the Allied assault on Normandy. And when the Allies attacked Normandy, all of Juliet and George's wedding plans changed. You see, what they didn't realize as they made their plans was there was a bigger plan that was in the works that they did not envision. In the battle, the church where they were to be married was destroyed. The place where Juliette was to pick up her wedding dress was destroyed, as was her dress. The little house where they were going to live was destroyed. I'm told that Juliet still lives near Utah Beach. The U.S. Army found out about their wedding plans. And they bought Juliet and Georges wedding garments. They were married not on June the 6th, but on June the 23rd. And she said this 50 years after the battle at Normandy. She says, not only did the Americans liberate us, but they made our marriage. They were amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow is uncertain. Life is short. While you are here, make sure that God in Christ is front and center in your life. And if you have made that decision, crises will come. Yes, they will. But you will weather those storms and you will weather those crises because you have prepared yourself like nobody else. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan. We may not know it. We may not understand all of it. But I'm thankful that you have a plan that is bigger than anything we envision. Lord, we know that the future is uncertain. But that uncertain future is in the hands of a sure God. We know that life is short, whether we live a few days or more than a century. But Father, the important thing that you've told us in your word is, is to put Jesus Christ front and center. Lord, surely, in the congregations that will fill this building this morning, there are people who do not know you. People who have never made the decision to receive you. My prayer is that they would receive you today. In Jesus' name, amen.